Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Children's picture books often contain stories that grown-ups can benefit from, too. That's certainly true of Andrea Wang's new picture book, Watercress. With illustrations by Jason Chin, Andrea's new book takes taste memories to new highs and lows with her childhood tales of foraging for food on the roadsides of her Ohio home, which led to an understanding of the Chinese culture of her ancestors and the sacrifices they made in order for her to be an American. Andrea's beautiful book inspired us to dig deep into the cuisines of Asia, an exploration that continues with Christina Quackenbush, whose milkfish pop-up introduces us to new flavors from her Filipino home. Before we take a deep dive into homemade dumplings, stir-fries, and more with Xing Chao's Chinese soul food cooking primer. Finally, we get a unique take on what happens when the flavors of Southeast Asia and Southeast Louisiana marry under the guiding hand of Chef Michael Golotta. He'll share some of the magic he creates daily right here in New Orleans at his restaurants Mofo and Maypop. We've got lots of new flavors and new ideas to share with you on this week's Louisiana Eats. Foraging is trending. The advent of slow food and farm-to-table movements has inspired, or maybe was inspired by foraging. Although now it seems to have a hip connotation, searching for wild food resources was born out of necessity, using what's at hand. First-generation Asian-American Andrea Wang's first foraging experience was as bittersweet as the watercress she was gathering on the side of the road with her parents. She and illustrator Jason Chin shared with us the duality of free food and the memory of her first time gathering watercress. So watercress was growing in this water-filled irrigation ditch by the side of the road in rural Ohio. And it looks like a weed to me. And it never occurred to me that it would be food until my parents stopped and made us get out and gather it. I was unhappy <laughs> doing this activity. Um, I was one of a very few Asian American families in my small town in Ohio. And I already felt like I didn't belong. So to be seen gathering, you know, weeds from a ditch to eat was um, a very painful experience for me. And your little brother wasn't making it any better, was he? <laughs> no, he's my older brother. And yeah, the uh, you know, he held the watercress up to my face and, you know, shook it at me because he thought this was hilarious. At the dinner table that night, my parents had cleaned and 
you know, cooked the watercress and presented it. And I didn't want to eat it. I only, you know, it says in the book that I only want to eat vegetables from the grocery store. And that was so true. I wanted to be just like my, you know, um, peers who I was pretty sure had never foraged for food in their lives. I didn't want to be seen as different. And my parents were very practical and they told me, you know, it's fresh and it's free. But that word free is so loaded. It means something completely different to me as a child um, than it did to my parents. You know, free for me was, you know, hand-me-down clothes and the furniture they used to pick up at the roadside and, you know, getting dinner out of a ditch. So um, it was not until my mother told me a story about her younger brother and growing up during the famine in China. Um, some of this is a bit fictionalized, but it's true that she did lose a younger brother and, you know, that there was just not enough food to eat and he did not survive. Were you grown up enough at that point to have that empathy and make that connection once you looked at the watercress in a different way as something that maybe had stood between your family, your forebearers, and starvation? I'd love to say yes, but the truth is, is that my parents kept um, their memories to themselves for a very long time. So my mom did not tell me the story of her younger brother until I was much older. She was trying, I think, to protect us from, you know, showing the, the difficulties that she had as a child. Um, and, you know, they're sad memories. So it wasn't until I was much, much older, even after I knew that story, um, to put it all together and sort of condense the timeline in the picture book and come to the realization of how much I appreciated my parents and felt really connected to my heritage. Now, Jason, is this your first project with Andrea? Is this the first time you all have worked together? Yes, it is. Our editor, Neil Porter, brought me the manuscript and asked to illustrate it. And um, I read it and I was just blown away. It's just magnificent. Uh, it's so emotionally evocative and beautifully written. And it was clear that a manuscript like this doesn't come along very often. At the same time, I was very nervous about taking it on because it's such a personal story. It's such a heavy story, but but mostly because it was so personal and I'd be illustrating Andrea as the main character, you know. You know, I always feel a lot of responsibility um, when I take on another author's project because I'm taking their baby. I'm taking something they've put their passion into and you know, adding my voice to it. For this project, I, I felt uh, like that to a greater degree. Luckily, our editor introduced us to each other and we got to meet and, and I got to know Andrea and she really is such a lovely person and put me at ease. I really want to commend you. I, I don't know um, if you had interviewed Andrea ahead of time about what it was like in her home, but you got the period so <laughs> perfectly correct 
from um, the Corel dinnerware yes. uh, to the <laughs> corningware right. that, corning that, right. that is pictured as holding this watercress. And yeah, I remember it, showing a picture to Andrea. I said, I, I'm going to use this corningware. Does that feel right to you? She was like, yes. <laughs> oh, good, because we had that too. <laughs> it, it just really um, hit a yeah. perfect time period so beautifully. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I paid a lot of attention to all the artifacts that I put in the book because um, I wanted to use them to help set the stage for the time periods. So both in uh, 1970s in Ohio and also in the 1950s or late 50s in China. And Andrea, when this is such a personal project for you being really almost a memoir, um, when you first saw the illustrations, how did they make you feel? I cried. <laughs> they were just so stunning and brought the book to life in a way that I never could have imagined. Um, when I wrote the story, I actually didn't think it could be a picture book because it's so emotional and so interior. Uh, I did not know how an artist would be able to depict the layers of memory, but um, the way Jason brought memory in and you know the the color palette changed to denote the memory. I just was blown away. I uh, thought a lot about Chinese painting actually when I was thinking about how to depict memory, and I thought about Chinese landscape paintings. And if you're familiar with them, you might know that there are often mountains shrouded in fog and clouds, um, and they use very soft edges when painting landscapes. And so I, I tried to bring some of that aesthetic into the book to represent memory uh, and give the book a, a, the same sort of dreamlike quality that I see in Chinese landscape paintings. For me personally, um, working on the project gave me an excuse to kind of return to my heritage and my roots. Hear some of my father's stories from when he was growing up, which are very similar to Andrea's stories of not wanting to eat Chinese food because he wanted to fit in, he wanted to belong in uh, America. This gave me another way to reconnect to my family's heritage and my family's story. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's being from South Louisiana. But I have not really seen many children's books that deal with Asian American children. So this is such a special book for such an important segment of our population. Yes, I, you know, not only wanted to write so that Asian American children could see themselves represented in children's books the way I didn't when I was small. Um, I wanted them to feel seen and understood, but I also wanted non-Asian American readers to see the Asian American experience. I hope the book sort of humanizes the Asian American experience and, you know, helps that fear and misunderstanding when you don't know about a different culture. This is, of course, Andrea's very specific story, but all of the themes in it are very universal. Themes of belonging, fitting in, embarrassment, uh, being embarrassed by your parents. I think everyone goes through that. And as we've been sharing it with people since it's come out, we've heard 
many, many stories of people from all walks of life that identify with it. And surprising to me, especially the forging part of it. People who come up to us or tell us, you know, oh, my parents made me forage. And these are not Chinese people. These are people from all over uh, and all different backgrounds that are connecting with that. So I've been just so pleased at the reception that it's had and how many people are connecting with the story. I think I just want to say that I hope this book helps families spark important conversations about where their parents and, and ancestors are from, as well as to encourage them to share their own stories and create new memories. Well, I am hoping that a lot of people share this with their children. It's a beautiful book, and I, I just love it. Congratulations. Well, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Really enjoyed being here. That was Andrea Wang and Jason Chin, author and illustrator of Watercress. Has Watercress ever found its way onto your dinner table? Stay tuned, and we'll tell you why it just might be your next superfood. Tucker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Has watercress ever found its way onto your dinner table? Move over, arugula. Watercress just may be the world's next superfood. This aquatic flowering plant grows wild in fresh stream waters all across Asia, Europe, and the Americas. It's a member of the Crucifarious family, but when nutritionally compared to kale, broccoli, and Brussels sprouts, it absolutely tops the charts. One cup of watercress is less than four calories, but includes chart-topping amounts of vitamins K, C, E, A, and B6, 
along with calcium, magnesium, potassium, and phosphorus. It's said to prevent cancer, lower blood pressure, maintain bone health, and it's an anti-inflammatory. But most importantly, it's delicious. Its peppery flavor adds a spicy accent to salads, stir-fries, and as a substitute for lettuce on sandwiches and burgers. Andrea Wang's parents were really on to something when they stopped to forage watercress on the Ohio roadsides of her childhood. Give watercress a try at your dinner table soon. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Within the pages of the new Filipino kitchen are a collection of 30 recipes and stories from expat Filipinos who have preserved their food memories and brought recipes from home into a new context. New Orleanian Christina Quackenbush of Milkfish contributed one of her own recipes to the book. She joined us in the Louisiana Eat studio to discuss her fascinating story and how the book came to be. Well, Filipino food has been having a hard time with identity, um, especially now that it's been coming out um, all across the United States. One thing about Filipino food is it has so many influences. So even though it's uh, the book is Filipino recipes, it definitely um, crosses the divides of race, creed, or whatever. It's definitely um, brought to you with stories that people can relate to um, in all families. A lot of the, the authors there are offering their stories from here, uh, trying to find ingredients here in the United States, trying to, uh, you know, have to pick different ingredients that they have to do because some ingredients can't be found. It's just been a journey. Well, I just love this beautiful new book, The New Filipino Kitchen. And one of the things that I love about it is that there, right in the very front of the many stories that are told in the book, is my friend, Christina Quackenbush. And the name of your chapter is Teach a Girl to Fish. And it tells the story of how you were born in the Philippines and how you came to America. Tell us about how you've made this life journey. Well, at five, my mother met my stepfather, who was a Marine. Um, He was uh, stationed over there. So uh, they got married, and I was so excited, and my mother as well was happy to move back to to the United States. We ended up in the Midwest, uh, land of corn, Indiana. So that's where I spent the next 15 years of my life when I moved there. What was really so poignant about the story is that your grandmother didn't want you to go. She wanted to keep you. Yes. Uh, My grandmother in the Philippines uh, loved me so much. I was her... Uh, my mother was her only child. I was her only grandchild. So we were pretty much her only family. And she was just begged my mother. She was like, please, please leave Christy here. And she called me Christy. But uh, leave her here with me. I'll take care of her. Um, but it it was a very poor time over there. My my family was very poor. And my what mom wanted like- better for me. It was literally the, the commercials that you see on television where the kids are in the gutters. And, the, and that was my life from the first five years. Oh, my goodness. And so you all came to America. You came to the Midwest. Did you see your grandmother again? 
Unfortunately, I never got to see her again. Never. Um, that saddens my heart more than anything. Um, I, I received plenty of. She couldn't even read or write, so people had to read uh, or write for her to send me messages. And and she still, you know, till the day she died, which was just about five years ago, that she finally, that she still would tell me she loved me and she missed me. She wished she could see me. Um, I never got a chance to see her before she died, and that's one of the biggest regrets that I have. Yet. I can only imagine that you honor your grandmother and you keep her memory alive today in the food you cook. This is very true. This is one of the ways that I, you know, pay homage to her and make sure that, you know, our family, even though we're in a different country that I'm representing, you know, where I came from. Um, so the food that I cook came directly from my mother. I, I obviously didn't have any other influences of the Filipino food except from my mother. And also they were, um, you know, with American ingredients, so they weren't even, you know, like they should be. All the stuff that she cooked all came from her mother. And um, she wanted to make sure to instill, you know, this, these recipes and stuff in me. Um, and so I, that's what I did, just just growing up like, what is this? You know, I, I was more into the American food. And so when my mother would make that stuff, I, I never really appreciated it then, never. You know, I mean, it was good, and I could smell it coming home, and I loved it. But I never really appreciated it until my grandma passed. That's when I appreciated it the most. And the, the name of your chapter is to teach a girl to fish because that's a very interesting transition with Filipino food in the Midwest. And the concept of raw fish. Tell us that story. Well, in the Philippines, a lot of the, the people are fishermen. Coming over to the Midwest, I didn't, and being so young, I didn't, I didn't get to appreciate the fishermen. Um, but I did get to appreciate fishing because I grew up on the Ohio River with my American uh, family, my American Irish grandmother, um, and we literally had a camp right on the Ohio River. My grandpa would fill a whole filter thing full of like crawfish. Uh, for bait, and he would drop it, and all this fish would come up, and he would. I would sit there just amazed. He would show me how to skin them, and right after he was done, he'd put a little salt on them, make them bounce around on on the table and stuff. So, uh, growing up fishing, I I loved it a lot. My mother always did this weird thing when we got the fish. She would always put vinegar in it, and I was just like, did, "You didn't even cook that, you know?" As a kid, I was totally like, "I can't believe that you're eating that. You you haven't even cooked it. It's raw." Um, so I always wondered why she did that, and I never liked it at first. But, you know, as a kid, your your taste buds develop. When I finally did, like, a light bulb went off, I was like, this is actually pretty good, you know. And I would sit down, and it would be marinated. She would have tomatoes and red onion and, and cucumbers and the fish all marinated in the vinegar, and we would eat it with rice. It was just, it was just a, a thing my taste buds were not used to or, <laughs> or even ready for. But I was very, very much happy, and then... That, that just came in a development over time of the recipe I finally put out. Christina, how did you end up in New Orleans, and how did food become your life? Well, that's, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to come to New Orleans is because, you know, if you want to be anybody, you want to go down to New Orleans where all the different food people are, the restaurants, the chefs. That life for me was just so glamorous, and I, I wanted it so bad. Um, I actually studied and got a degree in computer programming but did not like it. Um, as I was going to college, I was in restaurants. So I came up in restaurants, and I just loved it so much, every aspect of the restaurant business, the food, the guests, all that stuff. Um, I really wanted to make an impact and, and just really be part of the food scene here. It was it, That's been my whole point. And from the 
first time I've been here, I have did nothing but food. Well, you know, <laughs> and, and you really have created your own footprint. I think I first became aware of you when you were doing pop-ups at Marie's down in the Marigny, yes. you know? So tell us how your path has followed. Well, I mean, I, I, I have to give one person um, complete credit for my success. Well, not complete, but he, the biggest mentor for me, and that's Adolfo Garcia. When I finally came in to work for him and I was bringing food in, he's like, you know, you should. we don't have anything like this here. Isn't that weird? And I was like, yeah. So uh, next week he sends me an article from a, a restaurant in New York that started pop-ups. This was back in 2011 when pop-ups weren't really, yeah. you know, the thing yet. He goes, I think we should do this. And from that very first pop-up, it ignited in me like, oh, my God, it's a. this is definitely something that I could do. I could go around and start doing pop-ups. And at that time, there wasn't very many. There was Pizza Delicious. There was the Wandering Buddha. There was very few. So yeah. it was a super exciting thing to do. And when I first approached Marie's, you know, their, their kitchen was no bigger than this room. <laughs> it's a funny, <laughs> funny place. It is. And, it you know, and it was it was just tiny. And uh, all of us in the kitchen together, we literally had, were rubbing elbows. So it was, it was definitely a challenge, but, uh, you know, moving from spot to spot and to be able to make that space yours for the time being that you're there and to be able to put out really good food was, was always a challenge. Um, Marie's was really a good stepping out point. That's when the neighborhood started coming together. Other restaurants in the neighborhood came down and said, why don't you pop up at my place? Well, Christina, it is so wonderful to continuously find you freshly popping up here and there. Congratulations over the part you played in the new book, The New Filipino Kitchen. And I cannot wait to see where you pop up next. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much, Poppy. It's so good being here. Christina Quackenbush of Milkfish. You can currently find milkfish popping up around New Orleans. For more information, visit milkfishneworleans.com. My name is Xiao Ching Chow, and I am the author of Chinese Soul Food, and I also teach cooking in Seattle here at Hot Stove Society. Xiao Ching Chow's love of journalism and cooking sprouted from a seed planted long ago by her parents. Immigrants from Taiwan, they sought to further their education and make a better life for their children here in America. When Xiao Ching was just a girl, they opened a Chinese restaurant to help support their journalism studies and their family. Xiao Qing's childhood love of journalism and food transformed into a career writing cookbooks and teaching cooking. Her book, Chinese Soul Food, is remarkable on many levels and is absolutely one of my favorites. The cooking teacher in Shaoqing really shows in her recipes for everyone's favorite Chinese restaurant dishes, like pork spare ribs and chili wontons, which she demystifies using ingredients you're likely to already have in your pantry. We spoke with Shaoqing about how this all came about. 
Well, I, I wanted to create a book that would be more inclusive of the um, you know most diverse audience of of home cooks because I feel like anymore everything is about what very special precious experience we can have or what celebrity can have a book and you know how beautiful is it how how comprehensive is it and I just wanted something that was practical that people would actually take into the kitchen and cook from it. I love that you refer to what you do, and you also named your book Chinese Soul Food. What does that mean to you? It's that these foods, these recipes, they're everyday Chinese home cooking, and most Chinese families will have some version of these dishes. You know, it's kind of like in America, it might be fried chicken and mac and cheese where everybody's got their slightly different version, but they're all good. Same thing, like the the green beans or the wontons or the dumplings. You know, there's a basic method for making these foods, but maybe maybe your grandma liked it with a little more ginger or... um, or a little more spice, or, you know, you name it. So there's some variation, but if you ask people about these dishes, they will wax poetic about these foods it, because it just it hits you at the core, and it's, you know, usually if, you're, if you had a bad day, you're like, yeah, I need a bowl of noodle soup, or I need a bowl of congee, or you know, if you're sick, oh, I, I need to have some of that chicken soup. You know, they just, they... they they unify us across all the different regions and all all across the the if I may borrow another term the diaspora of of Chinese people who are around the world and by the way there's a Chinese restaurant in every town anywhere in the world so it just kind of it's that food that you know there's it's not fussy um, it just comforts you and you know that you're home. One of the things that you accomplished with all gold stars, as far as I'm concerned, is to you set out to write straightforward recipes inspired by foods of your childhood. And, you know, I've been cooking or attempting to cook or fascinated by Chinese food my whole life. And, you know, I hail back from a time before there were any Asian markets, and these ingredients were quite obscure. And I'm fascinated that again and again, I read one of your recipes, and there doesn't seem to be any need for any exotic ingredients. Well, I, I think that we we somehow in this culture feel that to be special or to be, quote, authentic, we have to go to the ends of the earth to find the most authentic ingredients that were grown in, you know, the villages of the Sichuan province or whatever it is. And while, while you know, that, that search for the most authentic flavors is not, uh, is not inherently a bad pursuit, it is not practical if you live in the middle of the country um, you know, the middle of Missouri or, or wherever it is. Like, you just don't have that kind of access. But the beauty of this kind of cooking, this um, just the spirit of, of tra- 
traditional Chinese cooking is that you can take these methods and adapt it to whatever ingredients you have wherever you are. So a stir-fry is a stir-fry. Whether you have Chinese cabbage or baby bok choy or you have kale, Okay, so it's a green vegetable. You can still apply the techniques of stir-frying, the techniques of balancing flavors. Um, so, you know, it's more about um, if, you, if you have something that's hot, sour, salty, sweet, there are different ways to achieve that balance. So like with the spare rib dish that you're talking about, you know, traditionally it's made with um, uh, Chinese black vinegar and rock sugar. Well, if you don't have Chinese black vinegar and rock sugar, how how are you going to get that acidity and that sugar? Well, you can use brown sugar. Um, it's not the same. I'm not I'm not equating it to the, to uh, rock sugar, but I'm just saying you're still getting that rich sweetness. And then if you don't have the Chinese black vinegar, you know you probably have some balsamic vinegar. Use that instead. What is your essential Chinese pantry? I have to have soy sauce. <laughs> I mean, and and I talk a little bit about this, but, um, you know, in America, we kind of rely on the most familiar brand, which is probably Kikoman, um, if, uh, which is a Japanese brand, and there's nothing wrong with it, um, but it's one soy sauce, and it's Japanese. That's almost um, like saying there's only one kind of wine, huh? Right, exactly. So it's like, you know, you don't just say, hey, I need wine in the house. You say, well, what kind of wine? There's, you know, there's white, there's red, and then within that, there's old world, new, you know, on and on, different regions, different um, styles, oaked, unoaked. Same kind of thing with soy sauce. Not that I, again, I don't want people to think that they must have a certain brand or a certain style. I just want people to notice that a there are different types of soy sauce. They have different flavors. And from from Asian cuisine to Asian cuisine, um, the, the general flavor profiles are different. So Chinese soy sauce is different from Japanese soy sauce. It is different from Thai or Vietnamese um, uh, sauces. So if you, if you understand nothing else, just know that there are differences. And then you know, like in Southeast Asia, the soy sauces tend to be sweeter. Um, in Japan, sometimes they're more refined because um, they they like to serve it with raw fish. Um, there's just stylistically, they're, they're different flavors and they're used for different purposes. So what I recommend is if you are going to do any... Um, you know, a little, little bit more Chinese cooking, then look for a Chinese soy sauce. And when you're buying soy sauce, um, make sure that the label says that it's naturally fermented and brewed. So then you know that it was, that they took the time to actually develop the flavor of the soy sauce. And it wasn't just um, chemically produced in a factory, you know, for, for the masses. Now, what about cooking equipment? Um, because... Maybe you don't have a lot of special. Maybe you don't have a wok. Maybe you don't have a steamer. It's okay, huh? Yeah. So you can jerry-rig a, a steamer. Now, if you if you want to be serious about stir-frying, you should get a wok. But let me say that you don't need to spend a whole lot of money on a wok. So get a carbon steel wok. You shouldn't spend more than, uh, say, $30, $35 at the top. 
Now, if you don't have the space, some people have small kitchens, maybe they don't cook Chinese food that often, you know, there's there are a lot of dishes that don't require a wok at all. And then if you really just want to put some vegetables together, I'm not going to penalize you for using a saute pan. Because again, I want you to get in the kitchen and cook. So if you use the recipes, but you don't have exactly the right equipment, um, still make the food. And at some point, my hope is that they'll, they'll love this food enough that they do want to commit to buying some of the pieces of equipment. And really, it's so basic. If you have a wok, you can do so many things with it. This is the Chinese cookbook I've been looking for my whole life because every single one of my favorite dishes that I ever eat out anywhere in a Chinese restaurant, or they're all there. They're all there. <laughs> and it's just a treasure. I'm tickled, tickled to have it. And I hope everybody will avail themselves of your book because I think it's a must-have. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. That That is music to my ears. Well, I mean it. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, absolutely. I appreciate your time as well. That was Xiao Ching Chow, author of Chinese Soul Food. Coming up next... We join Michael Galata in the kitchen at Maypop, where the New Orleans chef fuses the flavors of Southeast Asia and South Louisiana. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes, available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, stay play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. The North Shore is brimming with welcoming patios, boasting waterfront views, and decadent dishes. Indulge in fresh Louisiana seafood, locally grown produce, homemade sweet treats, and ice-cold brews. You're invited to feed your soul along the Tammany Taste Culinary Trail, just 40 miles north of New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. Plan your St. Tammany visit at louisiananorthshore.com. If there's a single way to illustrate the influence Southeast Asian cooking has had on Louisiana cuisine, Michael Galata's food just might be it. 
When he opened MoFo in New Orleans' Mid-City in 2014, he amazed diners with his artful combinations of traditional Vietnamese and Louisiana ingredients. In 2017, Michael opened a second restaurant in New Orleans' Market District, Maypop, where his Asian-European flavor combinations reached new heights and their dim sum brunches became legendary. Closing in March of last year due to pandemic restrictions, the Maypop team reopened the restaurant on April 22nd this year. In 2018, Louisiana Eats joined Michael in the Maypop kitchen, where we witnessed the New Orleans chef blur the lines between where Southeast Asia ends and South Louisiana begins. I always love the fact that New Orleans sort of assimilates all of its cultures. Yeah. I love the fact that like, if you go to any New Orleans restaurant, if you go to a New Orleans Italian restaurant, it's always New Orleans first and Italian second. True. But the Vietnamese culture is so new that they were still very traditional. Every one of their restaurants is very traditional. And now it's changing. Yeah. Just in the last five years, four years, even since MoFo opened. Now you see a lot of younger second and third generation Vietnamese uh, men and women opening restaurants that are more New Orleans with their Vietnamese heritage mixed in. So that's sort of what MoFo was when we opened it. We said, how can we make a New Orleans restaurant that has Vietnamese influences? It's not a Vietnamese restaurant. I think that's, that's something that we run into. People are like, well, this isn't Vietnamese. I'm like, yeah, I know it's not Vietnamese. I'm a guy from New Orleans. I yeah. just grew up with a lot of Vietnamese friends going to their houses and eating bonsai crepes and all these things. And, and so I loved eating it growing up, but obviously it's not my culture. So this right. is my culture. This is New Orleans cuisine through that lens. This is one of the things I know that really turned my head about your new restaurant because I am a dim sum lover and that's something we really don't see a lot of here well, in new orleans anyway i think that was the whole idea you know i think the the same with when we opened mofo you know we wanted to sort of fill that void in that area that we were in so like you know no one was roasting whole animals no one was was doing all these curries from scratch and and grinding them by hand and mortar and pestles and mm. so it's like one of those things that i just craved and i couldn't really find it anywhere unless i wanted to drive way to the deep west bank or something like that i couldn't find it in the city proper and so that's why we opened MoFo in Mid-City, and so it's sort of the same thing with Maypop. We opened it up, and you know, our first sort of Saturday, Sunday, we were sitting there, and we weren't really busy yet, and I was like, man, we should do a brunch. I'm like, but that, you know, coming up in the industry, you don't want to do brunch, because brunch is brunch. You're like, what can, do right. this, what can we do that's really fun? And I'm like, man, no one, except for on the West Bank, or right. you know, no one really does dim sum. So we said, well, how can we bring dim sum to downtown? And that kind of became the, the catchphrase, you know, downtown dim sum. So the idea, was how do we still sort of keep the same vein of using local products to make really cool dim sum dishes? Because I think because I'm New Orleanian, I eat with a heavy, I still cook with a heavy hand. Right. And you still see a lot of like traditional um, people will come in, uh, Vietnamese uh, or Chinese will come in and eat here, even at MoFo and Maypop, and they're like, well, it's very heavy. And I think that's the New Orleans in me. Yeah. But the New Orleanians come in and say, oh, it's so light. <laughs> so I think that's sort of the, we, we sort of get stuck in that dichotomy of like, we're neither. We're neither Southeast Asian, nor are we New Orleans. We're some, we're some sort of new hybrid. And so I love it. I love, like every time it's like, oh, it's a little, it's like really rich, even though there's not one speck of cream or butter in anything, it's all coconut milk. So the, so the, the, the Southeast Asians who like Vietnamese food is very, very light and they don't actually use a lot of coconut milk unless it's in desserts. Whereas yeah. the, Thai use, the Thai use a lot more coconut milk for their curries, but still they don't use as much 
as I use, because I like reduce it down, almost like we reduce, like I was trained to reduce cream down in all the classical New Orleans recipes right. where you reduce cream down to this heavy sauce because that's just the way we cook. So I reduce all the coconut milk down because that's what I'm used to. And it's hard to break out of that mold. So is there one particular <clears throat> Asian culture that you are channeling here at Maypop? No, because, not really, because dim sum is Southern Chinese more than Southeast Asian. And then, you know, a lot of this food has um, more Thai influence than Vietnamese influence. And then even some of our, some of our house-made sambals and things like that, like we have a pork hock dish on right now, and it has a pineapple sambal on top, but that's an Indonesian sambal recipe where you use like really funky shrimp pastes and caramelize it down with, with palm sugar and, and, and tamarind water. And, but then we put it over <laughs> a, pot, a pot liquor made with coconut milk and smoked ham hocks. So it's like... You get so much going right. on. And so, and sometimes <laughs> I feel like I'm pushing myself over the fringe here, but... How do you uh, dream this stuff up? When do you, when do you think these things? Well, with the pork hock dish, literally, um, my friends at Chopped Peel Farms were like, hey Mike, we have a... We, have, we just slaughtered a bunch of hogs. We have all these pork hocks and no one wanted them. And so I'm always kind of the, the goat of the restaurant industry. Whenever, people, whenever the local farms have things they can't move, they drop them off to me and I try to figure out something to do with them. Oh, it's like the commercial ad. Give him the Mikey. <laughs> He'll eat them. Is that how that goes? So when I first got the pork hocks, I was like, oh, we're going to do something really clean, like this really nice risotto milanese, but we'll use sticky rice and then we'll make almost like an asabuco with the pork hock over the top. And I was like, man, I'm still in South Louisiana. So we're going to make a pot liquor, we're going to braise these guys, slow braise them in coconut milk uh, with, with smoked pork hocks in there as well. So make this really rich pot liquor, but add the coconut milk to it to add a little creaminess. We'll throw in some local field peas, and then we're going to, after we finish braising those pork hocks, we're just going to drop them right in the deep fryer. And so the skin on the outside just gets all crackling. So we put this in, we add some local collard greens, so we have this collard green and field pea pot liquor underneath. We still add a little bit of vinegar, just like you would to a traditional pot liquor put the, the, the pork hock on top, and I was like, well, I need something like really just to kick it over, kick it over the top. Um, so we made a pineapple sambal, which is a dish that we developed over in Mofo. Uh, my chef de cuisine, Paul, over there, who actually, he does travel to Indonesia and Southeast Asia every summer. And so this is a recipe that he brought back for this really awesome Indonesian sambal. And so we smoked pineapples and folded this spicy sambal with the pineapples and then and topped that on top of this pork hock. So you have like funky, sweet, smoky on top, you have really rich crackling pork hock, and then you yeah. have this this smoky uh, uh, pot liquor with local collard greens and field peas and a, just a little bit of coconut milk to make it rich. And then so suddenly you have this dish that's everything and nothing. Yum! It's yeah. everything and nothing. If you had to explain to the people who are great lovers and frequenters of MoFo, how is Maypop different? Maypop really brings in more of my Italian upbringing. So we have a whole noodle section that we don't have at MoFo. You know, we can do the prettier plate-ups. Uh, it's like nicer stemware, higher-end wines. The it's a little more fine dining. Right, a little more fine dining. With the same sensibilities. Exactly. And you're getting to show off your galata heritage here. And I get to show off my galata heritage. <laughs> we get, because we, we have a pasta machine. Like two, we make fresh and dried pastas in-house. Like pounds and pounds of fresh-made pasta every day. Um, but we toss them with all these funky ingredients and coconut milks and, and curries and house-made charcuteries. Michael, how'd you figure this out? I uh, just grew up with a lot of friends, a lot of Southeast Asian friends, because growing up in New Orleans, we have a huge community. But the dim sum, I didn't learn until much later in life. You know, not until I started traveling to New York and San Francisco and things like that, where people um, started uh, like, oh, you gotta go try this, you gotta go try this, because we don't have it in New Orleans. Right. You know, there's only a few places that do it, and you know as well as I, unless you're really, really popular, 
no one's gonna really go try it. So yeah. we weren't we aren't we just aren't known for it. This thing that you have learned, this is entirely self-taught. Right. Exactly. So I'm sure I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> but as long as people like to eat it, then I'm okay with it. Uh-huh. Right? From 2018, that was Michael Gulotta, chef and co-owner of MoFo, Maypop, and the Rum and the Lash in New Orleans. it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 